This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, I Was a Treasure, recorded February 14, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, uh, this was actually a talk I was going to give a few Sundays ago, and then I got sick and, uh, and just went to bed for three days and slept. So I had it all prepared, and I thought, well, it's still a good talk, I hope, and uh, I'll try it out this Sunday. Actually, the uh, motive for the talk came from the previous Sunday, when Mike Craven, in the, in the midst of a discussion, said, well, but why are we here? Why is all this here? And it's a good question. <laughs> so I thought I'd uh, uh, try to, again, give a one... Uh, slice of a mystical perspective on this. And in all mystical traditions, there, there are ways to answer this question. Uh, perhaps only the Buddha, when asked questions like this, refused to answer the historical Buddha. Uh, he was asked four questions about is the world eternal and this and that, and he said he wasn't going to answer these questions because what good would it do you? And there's a, a point to that. Uh, from a mystic's point of view, it's not about coming up with a new theory about the world or a, a new philosophy. And the Buddha was much more interested in providing practices so that you could discover the truth for yourself. But nevertheless, this is a question that uh, nags us, and sometimes it's helpful to have a perspective in which to do our practice. So all mystical traditions, you'll find some answer to this. By the way, later Buddhists did uh, give some answers to this. But my favorite way of expressing this comes from the Islamic tradition. And I've talked about this before, but I don't think I've ever given a full talk on it. In the Islamic tradition, there's, of course, the Quran, which is definitive, uh, the word of God. But a second to the Quran, there are collections of hadith, that is, sayings of the Prophet Muhammad said in his lifetime that were taken down. And so this uh, comes from a hadith. And according to this hadith, uh, Muhammad asked Allah, God, uh, when the people ask me, why did you create all this? What should I tell them? And Allah said to Muhammad, tell them I was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. I was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. So I thought we would explore this in some detail this morning and see exactly uh, what this means. So first of all, uh, what does the I refer to? I was a hidden treasure. Well, the I refers to Allah, to God. But then what is God? Can we say anything about God? And the Sufi answer is a little bit different than the normal, I think, uh, fair to say, Muslim conception of God. Now, remember, I'm talking here about the Sufi point of view, not about the overall Islamic point of view. A, a lot of Muslims would be uh, horrified at what I'm going to say. But uh, if you talk to Sufis, they wouldn't be. In the Quran, Allah is said to be, first of all, one of the, he said he has lots of names, and one of the designations is Al-Haq. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. The real or the reality, what is ultimately real, what is truly real, underneath these passing forms and so forth. So al-haq is one of the terms that Sufis really latch on to, pick out 
What is real? What is the reality of our lives? And then another verse uh, from the Quran, several places, Allah is described as the seeing and the hearing. The seeing and the hearing. Now, I think it's fair to say most Muslims, like most Christians or Jews or, or people in the theistic traditions, take that to mean that God is some supreme being up there who sees and hears everything, knows everything. But the way it's written can be taken that he is the seeing and the hearing, the seeing and the hearing itself. Not some being who sees and hears, but seeing and hearing. And that's precisely how the uh, Sufis take it. So here's uh, Ibn Arabi elaborates on this. He says, so he is the spirit of the cosmos, its hearing, its sight, and its hand. Through him the cosmos hears, through him it sees, through him it speaks. So really what this is, is talking about consciousness. What is, makes our uh, a sight is not just the fact that we have physical eyes, it's the consciousness of sight. Dead people presumably don't see. There's no consciousness there. Hearing, seeing, speaking. And you'll find in one way or another, this is the same idea of what God actually is expressed in all traditions. For instance, in the Christian tradition, God is pure spirit. And what is spirit but that conscious, aware, incorporeal stuff? We can't even call it stuff. Stuff's corporal. Consciousness itself, the word itself, is a relatively recent word in our language. It only started to be used a few hundred years ago. And oddly enough, or, or not oddly enough, uh, coincidentally enough, or significantly enough, it started to be used when the word spirit started to go out of fashion, especially among <coughs> Western intellectuals, because they started no longer to believe in religion and God and so forth and spirits and whatnot. So, but you need some word to express this incorporeal mystery about life. This fundamental fact of our lives. In the Hindu Upanishads, they say of Brahman, because that's their name for the ultimate reality, he is the eternal among things that pass away, pure consciousness of conscious beings. That's like the seeing and the hearing. The Buddhists usually describe ultimate reality in terms of shunyata, which means emptiness, which means it's not like a vacuum, but it's empty of any specific form, specific quality, specific attribute. But uh, that's a negative way of putting it, and they like the negative ways of putting it because they know how much our minds latch on to a positive term and create a big daddy in the sky out of it. But nevertheless, Buddhists have had to use positive terms, if, if nothing else, just to convince people they're not talking about some nihilistic vacuum. And the terms they use are things like one mind, Buddha mind, primordial awareness, intrinsic awareness. Again, all terms that we could translate as consciousness. So I, the hidden treasure, is consciousness. The hidden treasure that longs to be known. So uh, why is Allah a hidden treasure? What does that mean? Well, Allah is a treasure because from the Sufi point of view, all that is is already contained in Allah from the beginning. 
or from eternity, we should say, because the beginning, there's no real beginning in that sense. Everything is already present in consciousness. Consciousness contains all. So, Ibn Arabi says, the forms existed potentially in the knowledge of God in a compressed form, just as the letters exist in, a com in compressed form in ink. They could not distinguish themselves from one another. So he's using an analogy, and this is in the old days, had an inkwell, and just like in a certain sense, all the letters you could write are in that ink. You pick up the pen and you write these letters, and the letters come out while well, they're all already there in the ink, but you can't distinguish one letter from another. Now, this is uh, something we again find in all traditions, this idea that everything is already contained in consciousness. Here's the Christian mystic Dionysius the Arapagan. The reality is that all things are contained beforehand in and are embraced by the one in its capacity as an inherent unity. Exact same idea here. Here's what the Hindu uh, Shaivite scholar Chandra Chatterjee says. Before manifestation, the manifested universe itself existed in the as yet unuttered thought and experience of the Supreme Shiva in the form of the all-transcendent word, the Paravak, that is beyond all objective thought and speech. So again, in Hinduism, we find the same idea. And then here's the Tibetan master, Mipam. All phenomenal existence are present from primordial time in the equalness nature of the single essence, the self-arisen intrinsic wisdom. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? One of the things uh, that we like to point out here at the center is if you read across these different traditions, you will find certain principles, certain fundamental teachings that are universal. They're the same from one tradition to another. There's a lot of stuff that's culturally shaped that you don't find from one tradition to another. But this fundamental idea that everything is already present, this is why, for instance, in the Jewish tradition, the Kabbalists, uh, one of their favorite words for God is Ensof means limitless, without limit, but Ensof is a fullness, is an utter fullness. And in early Christian traditions, uh, this was called the pleroma, that, that God is this utter fullness, in eternity is this utter fullness. So that's why God is a treasure. Consciousness is a treasure. It contains all this. But why hidden? Why a hidden treasure? Well, because all this already exists, but in an unmanifested form, as we like, we might say, potentiality or possibility, it is not present in any sort of manifest form. That's why Ibn Arabi says it's like the letters in the ink. They're indistinguishable one from another. And the reason is because form is distinction. All forms are forms of distinction. So we can illustrate this uh, very simply by just doing a very simple form here. Let me draw on the back of this uh, sheet of paper a circle. That's a form, one of the simplest forms you can draw. It's a form of distinction. The, the circle distinguishes the inside from the outside. There's no such thing as form without distinction. Is everybody following this? 
So if all forms are present and they're not distinguished from one another, you don't see anything. They're not forms yet. So how can we explain then how forms come out of a, a, a complete fullness? Well, again, let's look at the paper. I've got another paper here. I could say that this blank sheet of paper contains all possible geometric, plain geometric forms. In a certain sense, they're already there. All I have to do is bring them out. And the way I bring it out is, for instance, to draw, let's say, a triangle. I draw a distinction, and what, what am I doing here? I'm suppressing part of the paper. I'm hiding it under the ink. Do you see what I mean? I hide part of the, the fullness, and a form pops out at you. You see, you see what I'm driving at here? There are other ways to uh, do this, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I've never tried to do it. Now I'm going to try to do it. For instance, if we could have some help with our audio, our visual aid, rather. Yeah? Now we have a light on the wall. And in that light, we have all sorts of shapes that aren't manifest yet. But I'm going to manifest them. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. And then here's a snake. It's a coyote and a snake. Now, how is this working? I'm, I'm suppressing light. Do you see what I mean? There's no actual form there. The form is really the absence of light. Is everybody following this? It's like I'm holding something back and then the form emerges. As long as I have the total fullness of the light, no form can emerge. But the possibilities are all there. I mean, I can do all sorts of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if I could do other things too, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> even, even more, uh, more sophisticated, we can see this because white light contains all colors in it. The whole spectrum, a range of colors. So when you go to the movies or you watch a slideshow, when the movie film comes between the light and the screen. What's happening is the film is suppressing various ranges of this spectrum of white light. So the red part of the film is suppressing all but red light. So only red light comes through. Do you see what I mean? So it's, a, it's quite ingenious how movie films work. They, they are really uh, showing you what is inherent in that light, all the possibilities <clears throat> of that light. But the only way they can do it is by repressing some of the light. Because when you're in the movie theater and the film breaks and suddenly it's just white light up there. So this is a, actually a very good a, a modern analogies here for the way mystics conceive of this cosmos coming into being from consciousness. It's already all there, just like all the colors in the white light. And what happens is the consciousness creates distinctions. So the question is, how does consciousness create distinctions? Well, inherent in consciousness is the power of imagination. And this is not something you have to take on faith. You can just test it out yourself. In fact, why don't we all do this? Let's close our eyes and let's imagine something, a, a circle or whatever you want to imagine. Just imagine for a moment something very vividly. So, out of that darkness and when you close your eyes and all that 
you create a distinction right there in consciousness. It happens. Here's what uh, Ananda Moyamai, uh, she's a uh, 20th century Hindu mystic. She says, this world has been created by a mere stroke of God's imagination. He himself speaks to himself for the sake of his own revelation. Here we have this idea of a hidden treasure being revealed. And it comes through imagination. Now, in many traditions, they'll talk about speech. Speech is really a concrete, vivid externalization of imagination, of thought. When we speak, we are, we are externalizing our thoughts and our imaginations. Here's another great Sufi. Rumi says, The root of all things is speech and words. God Most High created the world from a word, for he said, Be, and it is. That last be and it is is from the Quran. The idea in the Quran is God says, Be, and things coming to, to being. Now, again, it's not that God is some being who says be and then something happens. From a Sufi's point of view, the coming into being is God's speech. And this is the same thing is true in the Christian tradition. Another great Christian mystic, John Scotus Eriginus, says we shouldn't think that God sits around thinking up things. This, this paper is God's thinking paper. There's no gap. Whatever it manifests is, that is the speech. Gershom Sholem, who's a, uh, this Kabbalist scholar, he gives the Kabbalist view. He says, all creation is, from the point of view of God, nothing but an expression of his hidden self that begins and ends by giving itself a name, the perpetual act of creation. All that lives is an expression of God's language. So, Again, this idea of that in Kabbalism, God is giving expression to the hidden self is the same idea as the hidden treasure, isn't it? And it comes through naming, through speech, through distinction. And then those of you who grew up in a Christian tradition, you're familiar with the opening lines of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the original Gospels, they were all written in Greek. The word here for word is logos, a Greek word. And that does mean speech, but it has a lot more meanings. It also means to reason, to think, to measure. In other words, to create distinction. So the word is with God. It's, it's God's power. It's the power of consciousness to imagine, to create distinction. And through that, all things were made are made. And again, we can kind of see this. Uh, just by naming something like book, we distinguish it from everything that is not book. We give it a name. And if you've ever studied any anthropology or if you uh, read books across culturally, you will find that different societies have <coughs> distinguished the world in very different ways. It's not that the world is all fixed. Our language and our patterns of thought of our culture determine how the world appears to us. So if you go uh, uh, study or live with people in a shamanic culture, the world appears quite differently because they think about it differently. Just to give you one little taste of this, there's a wonderful little story 
of an anthropologist who lived with the Ojibwe Indians in, uh, I think, in Ohio or Minnesota or somewhere in the western, midwestern states. And he was with some of the elders who were still uh, had that, that original worldview, or a lot of it. And he was sitting with this elderly couple, Ojibwe couple, on their front porch in a thunderstorm. And they're sitting and rocking in their chairs, and they're listening to the thunder. And he's listening. It's kind of, you know, it's exciting and dramatic and fun if you like thunderstorms. And suddenly, the, um, the husband leans over to the wife, and he says, uh, I didn't get that. Did you get that? She says, no, I missed it. They're listening to the thunder speak. These are thunder beings. They're not just listening to thunder. And he had, he had missed that. He had part of their conversation. This is a different world. <clears throat> Yeah, it's almost incomprehensible that people could experience the world that way because we're so convinced the way we distinguish the world is the way the world is. Many ways to distinguish the world. Many ways the world can appear, depending on how we distinguish it. Through our thought, our language, our concepts, our ideas. So then, the question is, again, how does God exercise this power of imagination? How does consciousness do it? Well, the surprising answer to the mystics is through you. Again, it's not like consciousness, some other consciousness is up there thinking these things up. Consciousness is consciousness, the consciousness of conscious beings. So when distinctions arise in what you call your consciousness, that is God distinguishing the world. This is why Ibn Arabi again writes, it is for this that the reality created me. For I give content to his knowledge and manifest him. Ooh, suddenly, suddenly we see, why am I here? If you aren't here to distinguish, nothing manifests. The treasure remains hidden. Here's what the Christian mystic uh, Scotus Serginus says. God created his logos so that in it he might reveal some knowledge of himself. So the Logos made for itself an image, man, in which it might manifest its motions, which in themselves are hidden. Same idea here. The Logos is the treasury, the possibility, the potentiality of distinction in all these forms. But it's still hidden until there's us, human beings, to manifest it. If this sounds really rather unbelievable, we might want to take a glance at, and we can only afford to take a glance at here, quantum mechanics, modern science. Quantum mechanics is the physics of modern science, and quantum mechanics has a lot of peculiar properties, and if we think about them, we're forced to draw certain logical conclusions, such as this cosmos does not manifest until we observe it. This is what uh, Nick Herbert, Berkeley physicist, uh, says. Another way to look at the context dependence of the attributes of quantum systems is to think of such systems as seamless holes. In other words, there's no distinction in them. In order to measure such a system, one is obliged to break that wholeness, to cut open the apple of knowledge, as it were, how we make the necessary cut determines in part how that system will appear to our eyes. But unobserved, when we're not looking, the system has no cuts at all. 
and it is, in a sense, indescribable by conventional means. So from the point of view of quantum mechanics, it's not like all these objects are out there, sitting around out there. They are, and to, to use a term that uh, Heisenberg, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, used, he borrowed it from the ancient Greeks, Aristotle, all this exists only in potentia, as possibilities. And when we observe, the possibility then becomes manifest and realized. But it is our observing, our way of thinking, our way of distinguishing that makes this happen. Here's the French physicist philosopher Bernard de Spagna. The general approach of Democritean atomism is a false view of nature. If we call atoms micro-objects having no definite properties, then it is we who, so to speak, paint the distinct atoms on the canvas of non-separable reality, whatever this latter word means. He can't describe it either. We are the ones who conceive of atoms and go out and perform experiments, and sure enough, they are there. But according to quantum mechanics, they ain't there until we go out and do this. Another great physicist, John Wheeler, said, an electron ain't an electron until it's observed. I think he said isn't, but that's my <laughs> New York colloquial. Very strange, and we're not going to go off into quantum mechanics. I just want to bring this up because this whole idea that's uh, from mysticism, uh, you know, sounds very strange to people and, and unbelievable. Well, a lot of people think quantum mechanics is unbelievable, but it's the only physics there is these days. So, then what? The cosmos is a self-revelation that comes about through making distinctions, which is what we do. In that sense, we are absolutely necessary to the manifestation of the cosmos, to the revelation of this treasure that has been hidden. But now we need some other things. We need time. Because the possibilities are infinite. The possible forms that I can get out of this light are infinite. But if all infinite forms manifest together, you have a nothing. Just like in this paper. Infinite possibilities of geometric forms. And I start bringing them out. There's a, a triangle, a circle, a square. And I keep going. Pretty soon this whole paper is covered with infinite lines and nothing's manifesting. You see what I mean? It has to come through time. This is why Ibn Arabi says, that which is with God in the treasuries is infinite, but it is impossible for the infinite to enter into existence. So everything that enters into existence is finite, but the infinite does not enter into existence all at once. Rather, it enters little by little with no end. Do you see why then time is inherently necessary in in this view of how the cosmos unfolds. This treasure cannot be known all at once. It's there, but that because it's all there at once, it's unmanifest. It's only through a sequence, a performance, that it can become <coughs> manifest. By in the Sufi tradition, in the Christian tradition, in the Kabbalist tradition, creation isn't something God did, you know, way back then in one uh, fell swoop. It's an ongoing thing. And it never repeats itself. Each moment is a unique self-disclosure of the divine. A unique possibility. 
So, we need time, but now we need something else, curiously enough. In order for this treasure to be known, we also need a spatial point of view from which to know it. That's why the Sufis describe us as loci of a divine self-disclosure, a location. You are a location where a divine self-disclosure happens. You are the place that it happens, so to speak. Here's how Ibn Arabi explains it. The servant is the hearing and the seeing of the real, and by this the cosmos is established. For God looks at the cosmos only through the sight of his servant. So you see what he's saying here? Again, people, uh, religious people often imagine God, some big daddy in the sky, who looks down on the universe and them. You know, God's watching everything you're doing, keeping track there, you know, and whether you're doing good things or bad things and all that. But from the mystic's point of view, the way God sees the cosmos is through your eyes right now. And here's the cosmos. That's what consciousness is doing. From your point of view. And again, we can test this very uh, easily. Just close your eyes. The whole visual cosmos disappears. Open your eyes. It returns. When we go to sleep, no cosmos appears. When we're awake, there's a cosmos. <coughs> when we're in dreamlessly. This is why Zen master Wang Po writes, These mountains, these rivers, the whole world itself together with the sun, moon, and stars, not one of them exists outside of your minds. The vast chilicosm exists only within you. So where else can the various categories of phenomena possibly be found? Outside the mind, there is nothing. So it is that every single sight and sound is but the Buddha's eye of wisdom. So here's the Buddha saying the same thing. The Buddha's eye of wisdom, how the Buddha sees, is through you, through your eye, your hearing, your seeing. They didn't get, get this a little bit. This is uh, a Great World Atlas, Reader's Digest Great World Atlas. I love these things. Here's a picture of the solar system from out, out in space. Can anybody see this? You've seen pictures like this. Time Life books, you know. Uh, in fact, this one is the contemporary solar system. I don't have a picture, but some of these artists do the beginnings of the solar system, and they show you how there's the sun, and then there's the, the cloud of dust, and then in stages how it condenses and becomes planets. Have you ever seen that as in high school or something, right? There's a very interesting thing about this picture. It seems like some sort of objective, you know, representing objective knowledge about the universe. It's from a point of view. In fact, it never, it never appeared to anybody. I mean, maybe some aliens or something had this view. Just, it's in the artist's mind. It's not there this way. This requires a point of view to be there this way. Is everybody following this? Mm -hmm. If there's no particular point of view, what does it look like? If I have no point of view, 
it doesn't look like anything. It's not manifest. It only manifests from a point of view. Now, here's the, the real kicker. <laughs> you are a loci of a divine self-disclosure, and because of your point of view, you are totally unique. The cosmos, as you're experiencing, is appearing only and solely for you or for God through you, for consciousness, that consciousness that you are, and in no other way. So that, for instance, you all are looking at me. And our, the conventions of our language, we all agree that you're all looking at the same thing and there's some body here that you're all looking at. But truly speaking, what is appearing in your consciousness, and I'm putting yours in quotes because ultimately there is no your consciousness, but what is appearing is only appearing to you because the person next to you has a slightly different parallax view. And they're not seeing what you're seeing. And they can never see what you're seeing because even if you change seats, it'll be a moment later in time and the light will have shifted slightly in this room. So your experiences of the cosmos, your manifestation of the cosmos is absolutely unique, never to be repeated. If consciousness is going to know all its infinite possibilities, you are absolutely necessary to this process. Do you see what I mean? Somebody else won't do. You can't substitute somebody else. You following this a little bit? You go off and explore this in your own, you know, uh, think about it, do experiment with it. There is no objective appearance. There are only subjective appearances. And you are the instrument of that. Oh. This is why uh, another Sufi, uh, Rabia, she was one of the great of, uh, women Sufis, said, even the living sight of my eyes is service at your feet. In other words, from a Sufi point of view, you are serving consciousness. You are serving Allah. You are serving God. Whether you know it or not, simply by being aware. Simply being here. Just, ah, ah, you see? This is it. It's all unfolding here. So, consciousness <laughs> manifests this cosmos in order for consciousness to be known. That's why the cosmos is here. It's a self-revelation of that hidden treasure. And we are here because that revelation can't happen. Unless there's a point of view, unless there's someone to distinguish, unless there's imagination and thought. But this revelation is not yet perfect. It's not yet complete. It's not yet perfect and complete because we are ignorant of what's going on. We are ignorant that we are this consciousness that is doing this. So in that sense, consciousness is still ignorant that it is doing it. You following me? So if, if consciousness is going to have full knowledge, if the consciousness not only has to have knowledge of all these possibilities, but also has to have knowledge that it is doing it. So in all mystical traditions, 
In one way or another, our problem is viewed as we are ignorant, deluded, uh, don't see things clearly. We're misperceiving what's going on. That is our fundamental problem, and that is what mystical paths and practices are all about. How do we clear up this delusion? How do we get rid of this ignorance? How do we actually realize the truth? al haq Now, how does this... How do we get deluded? How do we get ignorant? Why don't we just automatically know the truth? This is a, in a certain sense, it's an unanswerable question because it's not true that we don't know. We do know. We just are deluded by the fact that we don't know. But we can try to give some analogy, some idea of this, and it might be helpful. For instance, let me ask you a question. What's your favorite movie? Just anybody. Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Okay, somebody else. What? <laughs> Which one? Goodfellas. Goodfellas, okay. Wizard of Oz, Goodfellas. Sound one more. Of music. What? The Sound of Music. Sound of Music, okay. Who starred in Wizard of Oz? Toto. What, what? No, let her, let her say. Lucy. No, who starred? Who's the. Who starred? Yeah. Remember anybody else? Uh, Ray Bolger. Who are the other guys? Bert Lars. Bert Lars. Okay, good enough. And how about Goodfellas? Who starts? Uh, Nero was Robert De Niro was in that, and uh, Ray. Um, I forget his last name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah right. Okay. And then uh, Sound of Music. Who starts? Julie Andrews. Okay, great. Now, who wrote The Wizard of Oz? Bomb. Uh, I was going to say Barnum, but it's Bomb. 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 Somebody trying to bomb. Okay. Do you know uh, who wrote the good fella? Yeah, it's a guy that was actually in the mafia, but I can't remember his name. I read the book. Uh-huh. And do you know who wrote Sound of Music? Maybe someone in the Von Trump family. I don't know. Right. Interesting. Uh, just actually, it's interesting that you know as much as you do. <laughs> you know, you know who starred in movies that you see, but do you know who wrote them? Most Americans don't. Yeah, there's a big complaint of screenwriters. I used to work in Hollywood. You know, screenwriters always say, we never get credit. We're the ones who write this and nobody pays any attention to us. Why? We go to movies and we are uh, fascinated by what is visible to us. Oh, we want to know who starred in that. We can see that. We remember that. <clears throat> but who wrote it? We don't know. Generally. We don't know. Well, in a certain sense, the same thing happens by analogy here with consciousness. It gets mesmerized by its visible forms, but it doesn't know who the author is. And mystics say, well, the author is you, not you, the ego mind, but who you really are, truly are. Here's how Joygam uh, Trungpa, a Tibetan Buddhist, describes it. And he uses the image of a dance. This is quite beautiful. The beginning point is that there is open space belonging to no one. This is the space of primordial awareness, of intrinsic wisdom. We are this space. We are one with it. But if we are this all the time, where did the confusion come from? Where has space gone? What has happened? Actually, nothing has happened. We just became too active in that space. Because it is spacious, it brings inspiration to dance about. But our dance became a bit too active. 
At this point, we became self-conscious. <coughs> that is, conscious that I am dancing in space. <coughs> this is the first experience of duality, space and I. I am dancing in this space, and this spaciousness is a solid, separate thing. Duality means space and I, rather than being completely one with this space. Then a kind of blackout occurs, in the sense that we forget what we are doing. There is a gap. Having already created solid space, then we are overwhelmed by it and begin to become lost in it. This metaphor of forgetfulness you'll find in many traditions. Here's John Scottis Eregina again, the Christian mystic. For most mighty and most wretched was that fall in which our nature lost the knowledge and the wisdom which had been planted in her and lapsed into a profound ignorance of her creator. This is a mystic's view of the story of the fall. It's not that Adam and Eve did the dirty de deed under the tree there. We lapsed into a profound ignorance of the wisdom implanted in our true nature, who we really are. And of course, if you read through mystical traditions, you'll find the most common uh, metaphor for this is falling asleep. So just to give one example, Ramana Maharshi, great Hindu mystic, says, Waking is long and a dream is short. Other than this, there is no difference. Just as waking happenings seem real while awake, so do those in a dream while dreaming. So what happens in a dream, if you think about it, if you're not lucid, you fall asleep. Consciousness creates this cosmos of a dream, and you forget that that's what's going on, and then you take what's happening to be real, real in the sense of separate, objectively existing environment, which you then find yourself in, and are lost in, especially if it's a nightmare. How do I get out of here? How do I get away from this assassin? When you wake up, you realize, oh, consciousness was dreaming all this. This wasn't separate from consciousness. Consciousness is manifesting this. And in the dream, that image of you is simply a manifestation of this consciousness. And in a certain sense, it's made of consciousness. It's not made of anything else. So this is why this is such a powerful uh, image. It's the closest in our normal experience to understanding what the mystics are talking about. So to fully know this treasure is to wake up. Not wake up from the dream, but to wake up in the dream and know what is going on. If you've ever become lucid in the dream, it's quite amazing. Wow, what consciousness can do. Mm -hmm. And you know what it's doing. And it doesn't make it any less vivid in fact, if you ever become loose in a dream, uh, instead of wasting your time, uh, you know, chasing people of uh, uh, the opposite sex or something, uh, spend your time uh, examining the environment and making it as vivid as possible. And you can reach out and touch stones and get the whole sensation of the solidity of stone and everything coming right out of consciousness. And that is what the world is from mystic's point of view. All of this is. So it's not to say, oh, it's just a dream. It's like it's weak and, and pointless. No, it's a vivid, wonderful dance, performance, symphony. All these terms mystics have used to describe this. So the ultimate reason we're here is to wake up. 
and fully know what's going on. Become enlightened. Become uh, realized. This is why Ananda Moyamai says, to strive to know himself, to find himself, is man's duty as a human being. Of all creatures, man alone has been endowed with the potential capacity to realize God. Thus, the search after truth is his bounden duty. So God is a hidden treasure that long to be known, and we are the means by which God fully knows. And Ibn Arabi writes, It is we who make him a divinity by being that through which he knows himself as divine. Thus, he is not known until we are known. Did that answer your question about why we're here? Yeah. <laughs> Are there any questions or comments or experiences you'd like to share? Yes, I see somebody. Is that Maggie? That's Maggie. So when God says that he's a hidden treasure that longs to be known, he's essentially saying the same thing that all of us do. Who am I? Yes. <clears throat> Yes, and in the Sufi tradition, you know, uh, ultimately, you're not doing the seeking, God's seeking. God is the seeker and the sought, as Rumi puts it. And you're striving to know, and you're loving that striving, is God's enacting exactly what that saying is. Striving and loving to know himself, herself, itself, consciousness itself, so, I, you know, we're always trying to get away from the search, but you can't get away from the search. That's what consciousness is doing here. When's the search going to end? When will I be enlightened? Everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to cheat God. <laughs> you rush things. That's part of it. It's part of the play, the drama. On the other hand, you're assisting God in answering his own question. Excuse me? On the other hand, you're helping God to answer his question, who am I? Yes, yes, because you see, there really isn't any difference. We speak as though there's a servant and a God. And in the Sufi, uh, the Sufis say, this is fine, and it's very good to do this, but we must remember all names belong to God, to Allah. There is nothing in existence but Allah. So the name servant is naming Allah, and the name Allah is naming Allah. God, you see what I mean? So it's just like, you know, uh, I can call this a book, and I can call it, what, a tome, and I can call it a, come on, you paperback. literate people, what? Paperback. Paperback. <laughs> I have all these names, different names, but for the same thing. So all the names of all the cosmos are what? They're just names for the divine, because that's all there is. There's only consciousness. And you'll find this in many traditions. That's a, maybe a, a whole separate talk. Uh, Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, says, everywhere you look, you see nothing but God. You think you're seeing a rock or a tree or a star, but you're not. It's not that the form is different from what you're seeing, but it ain't a tree, it's God. Manifesting as what we call a tree. Yeah. <coughs> so there's only one consciousness, but each of us are like a, a separate loci of uh, for the consciousness to manifest. So it seems like there's a duality there. Well, 
first of all, we have to be careful of how we use the word I. Uh, for instance, Nagarjuna, the great Buddhist philosopher, said I has a double referent, and it's the absolute referent and the relative referent. So when we're using I in, a, in an absolute sense, the way the Hindu mystics say I am that, they are identifying your fundamental identity as consciousness itself. But uh, this form is a, a loci. So we, in that sense, we can talk about I. When I use the word I, mostly I'm talking about both this body-mind as we you know, understand it. I mean, this is, this is uh, what our language is designed to do, to make distinctions, and it's a good thing. You know, as I've said before, if we didn't know how to identify what I meant in a relative sense, when I said, I have to go to the bathroom, everybody here would jump up and rush to the bathroom. We only have two bathrooms here, and it would be a disaster. <laughs> and by the way, now the old big toilet uh, finally broke down, and we had to replace it with one of those new smaller tanks that mandated, so now you have to hold down that one and handle as well, uh, like the other one, to get it to go all the way down. I... I See, I forgot to announce that. I'm sorry. <laughs> this wasn't a spiritual teaching. <laughs> I didn't want it to slip away altogether. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, and this is something that you cannot put into words. It's uh, fine to think of it as there are all these uh, individual loci of divine self-disclosure. But in truth, there are not. And the one way to get at that is for you to uh, examine your own experience. There is only one in your experience. There's only one in anybody's experience here. So what would make you think that there were many when, when everybody has only experienced one? You know, Erwin Schrodinger, who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, who gave us the Schrodinger equation, which is the most powerful equation that has ever been devised in physics, has a wonderful um, little essay. In fact, it's in our book, Quantum Questions. And he writes about uh, visiting the Alps and sitting on some spot in the Alps and looking out across the, the mountains or whatever, and at a sunset or something. I've forgotten the exact details. And he says, we sit here and we look and we appreciate this and enjoy this. And then we realize that, you know, many people before us must have come here and sat and looked and seen the same thing. And then he says, and what makes you think it wasn't you? <laughs> so another way to look at it. How many consciousnesses do you know? One. How many do you know? One. How many do you know? So why do we assume there are many? I mean, everybody's experience is there's only one. We talk this way, and this is part of our distinguishing. That's, that is the performance. But when all is said and done, unlike a, a human play, there's only one performer. So when the, curtain, when the curtain call comes, you don't see a cast come out. You see one performer. A performer that is... Uh, neither male nor female nor old nor young nor, you know, is beyond all that. That is all part of the costume the performer assumes. And not only that, there's only uh, one performer and, and one audience and they are identical. So the audience goes like that and the performer takes a bow and there's only one doing it. This 
But there's only one hand doing the clapping. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) But this is the part, and I said this in the beginning, this is why this teaching, as all teachings are, is the finger pointing to the moon. There is a part beyond which concepts will not contain the, the truth here. And, you know, are trying to figure it out. I mean, I'm not... Uh, trying to discourage you from trying to figure it out. That itself can be a path because you can totally exhaust the thinking mind doing that and then it lets go and something can happen. But you must recognize this is the difference between why this isn't a dogma. This isn't something that I'm saying, now you have to go out and believe this because these great Sufis wrote it or or Buddhists or whatever. They are are fingers pointing the moon. And, and, And I'm trying to give this, present this to you in ways you could examine it for yourself. Really ponder that, you know? How many consciousnesses do I know? What is consciousness? Does anything ever appear outside of consciousness? Have I ever experienced anything outside of consciousness? Then in what sense is everything, can anything be separate from consciousness? Like, like objects and the way we think of physical space. You know, we, we think of them, our minds distinguish an object from physical space. But how could this exist without physical space? Where would it exist? What would it mean to say, well, this is different from space? What does that truly mean? You see what I mean? I can't. Here, you get it out of space. Can we ever get anything out of consciousness? Yeah, he's pondering. I see that. <laughs> the thinker. <laughs> yes. Um, you said that time is necessary because this um, this dancing has so many different forms. This presentation of reality. Um, but are there other paradigms where time is not at all created? Well, let me say this. Time itself, in a certain sense, is a delusion, is a a distinction. And uh, so it's probably better to say change. Time is is a measurement of change. So maybe it's more accurate to talk about change. Change is necessary. And, you know, I know you're a musician. He plays the violin, Zorba does. And in one sense, for instance, if I hand you a, a notebook with um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony all written down, right? In some sense, it's all there together, isn't it? Or better yet, I'll give you a um, a CD, a a disc. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is here, right? Okay, I mean, it's all there, present, all at once, on that CD. Is that true? Right. But I can't hear it all at once. I have to put it on the player, and it has to unfold. So this is the relationship between time and eternity, if you like. It's all there all the time, I mean, in eternity, all at once. But it cannot manifest that way. It requires a sequence, an unfolding, a change. So you will hear mystics talk about, like, time as being an illusion and and, an eternity and everything is present in eternity and there is no time and all that. But in a certain sense, that's talking about, again, pointing to the absolute nature of everything. 
not the relative nature. Yeah, I understand. To, to dance, there has to be change. To dance, there has to be change. Exactly right. That's right. And yet, in a certain sense, the dancer doesn't change. I mean, we as human bodies change. But Shiva, as Shiva dances, Shiva doesn't change. And yet there's change. This is, again, one of these paradoxes. A movement and a rest. Yeah. So just to kind of pair it back, what you're saying then, to be awakened is to have to be really clear about form and content, and it's to be clear that I am always the content. I am consciousness, and I can manifest form or it manifests through me. And if I'm clear on that, then I can do that, or I do that out of delight and out of joy and out of a sense of recognizing myself, and I'm not stuck and trapped in this horrible form, and I don't know how I got there. And so that's kind of the process of where this whole thing goes. And we need form to reflect back to us kind of where we came from in a way, too. That's where we're stuck. That's kind of where we're at. In many uh, mystical teachings, in the beginnings of the path, they sound sort of anti-worldly, or they can't. It's like to ignore form and to, uh, you know, go off and meditate and not get attached and not get wrapped up. And it can sound like nothing's wrong with the cosmos or whatever. But that's just an antidote for our, our being so totally mesmerized by form. So, you know, if, you wanna, if you're in a movie and you're totally wrapped up in the movie and you, you want to know how is this movie done, it's not you're getting rid of the movie, but you leave your seat and you go up to the projection booth and you look in there and then you see how it works. If you're so uh, attached to the movie, you'll never find out how it's done. You'll never get sort of behind the scenes. Do you see what I mean? But ultimately, no, we need this movie. I mean, this movie's not a mistake. Something didn't go wrong. This is the, uh, the school in which we learn. We throw this away, we throw away our school, so to speak. Joel? Yeah. Uh, are we are we individual beings or are we like um, okay let's see I'm from right now I'm working with the concept of that I am a distinct being and I'm connected to everyone different in different ways but but I am a conscient self-aware incorporeal being inhabiting this physical body and I go through changes <laughs> right. but it's, it's kind of like just there's like an acceptance that <laughs> comes after a while um, but the, this the question comes up in mystics say we are all one we are all one <laughs> And in the teachings that I think about a lot and, and reflect on, it's like, yeah, one, well, one what? <laughs> you know, and so right now I've been working with one family, one interactive unit with different roles and, and support systems or things break down or whatever, interrelated, a diverse human family. But anyway, it's... 
Okay. Why don't you take it? Yeah. I'll give you the answer to the question is, is, is if it's a question, it seems to me you're asking, am I, is it right to uh, be thinking of myself as sort of an, a distinct being, incorporeal being, inhabiting a body and, and interrelated to other people? The answer to the question is already in you. And so I'm going to give you an instruction whereby you can investigate this. You can just start observing whatever it is you think you are. So uh, let's start with a body, even though you already indicated that you don't really think you're the body, you're living in the body, right? But it's worth still starting with the body. Am I this body? And then you start watching this body and you see how it changes. But whatever is watching, is that changing? Do you see what I'm driving at? You can think about it too. I mean, which body are you? The one when you were six months old? Or the one when you were 20? Or the one when you're now? Or the one when you're going to be when you're 80 or 90, assuming you live that long? You know? uh, and uh, you know, just whatever ways you find to investigate this. And you will come to a, an insight that I, I can't be this body. I, something is observing this body. It's changing. It's phenomena. It's just like the clouds or something. It keeps changing, but what is it here that is observing? And then you can go through uh, your thought processes. You start watching your thoughts, emotions, whatever. Uh, you know, if you have a, even intuition that you're this uh, incorporeal being or something, is it always there or is that intuition come and go? And this is a, a process of self-inquiry and through this, what you're really learning is not who you are, but you're learning who you're not. And when you get to the end of it, and there's nothing more that you could be that is manifesting, that is a thing, that is a phenomena, that is a form, and you really become yourself convinced of this, then you are in that space when realization, a very high probability that realization will happen. So this is a, a direction that you can investigate and answer that question for yourself. But the trick is you really have to do this investigation. You know, I mean, the people who, who go that route, they, they don't just do it one afternoon and, you know, and they keep at it. And they keep at it over months and sometimes years. And they've set aside time to really to meditate on this, to ponder this. You know, that is the practice of self-inquiry. You'll find out for yourself then. So you don't have to ask me. Much better. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? If anybody wants to hang around a little bit, we can. It's getting on here. As Mike said, you're welcome to have some tea there. There's a big urn full of water. Check out the library. And uh, until we see you again, peace to you all.